Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. That for six and a half centuries nestled in the northern Italian countryside in Tuscany. It's one of the world's oldest wineries. Giovanni di Piero Antonori in 1385 became a member of the Florentine Winemakers Guild and the winery was established. It has survived flood and drought, wars and plagues, blight and revolutions, one government after another, and 65 popes, and it's still there. It's now under the 26th generation Antonori leadership of Albiera and her two sisters, Allegra and Alessia. There are three reasons, I think, that it has survived for almost seven centuries. One is hard work. Hard work and a good product that has consistently turned a profit. That must be a key to success in any business. Secondly, the tender care that they have given the earth to nurture it, to nurture the vines that produce quality grapes. Hard work and care. And then thirdly, consistent stewardship. Generation after generation, 26 generations of knowledgeable and experienced persons who know what they're doing. Now you might say, what's a Baptist preacher using a winery as an illustration? Why is he doing that? Well, the Lord did this. He used illustrations from everyday life, from people that that were not consistent with all of his values, to make a good point. And I think the point is this. There is success when you combine those three things. A balance between these three things, that is industry, that is hard work, ecology, caring for the environment, and also the humanity of stewardship. I think there's a healthy balance in this, and I think it's biblical. This morning's message is about work. It's the sixth in our series of messages on cultural apologetics, and you may ask, well, why are we talking about work? Because, folks, we have a society today that does not understand what work's about, I believe. You see, this balance has been under attack for well over a century, very much like we said about the other issues earlier related to life and sex and marriage. Remember we said that there's a biblical balance and an integration of love and sex and marriage and procreation which has been torn asunder by the sexual revolution in America. And I believe that there are also the same kinds of pressures that have torn apart this relationship between hard work and yet care for the environment and also human stewardship. You see, we live in God's garden, don't we? The world is God's garden. The psalmist says, the earth is the what? Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and all that dwell therein, this is my Father's world. And to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my Father's world. I rest me in that thought of rocks and trees, of skies and seas. 
his hand the wonders wrought. This is my father's word, world, the birds, their carols, raves. The morning light, the lily white, declare their maker's praise. This is my father's world. He shines in all that's fair. In rustling grass, I hear him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. This is God's garden in which we live. Not just the Garden of Eden. We continue to live in God's garden. He made us in his image with a purpose in mind for us to walk as we talked several times in our series on worship, to walk in worshipful devotion to him and to serve him along the way. And he created this world for that purpose. He created the earth as a place for us to help him accomplish his purposes. We live in our Father's world and it's his garden. And we're his gardeners, we're his caretakers. And he has a blueprint for how we are to take care of his garden. And it's found in Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 1, 28, he charts two ways that this blueprint is implemented to accomplish his plan. He says there, after he talks about creating man in his image, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In this passage, we see that there are two ways of the blueprint. One is the biological way. The biological way is the way of life. The biological way is the way of life that is to be fruitful and to multiply. There's also the other way, and that's the operational way goes beyond biology. The operational way is the way of work, what we do to fill the earth and to subdue it and to rule over all living things. This has been criticized by some that say, well, you think that you're emperors of creation, you're rulers of the domain, and isn't that rather, rather full of hubris? But it isn't, not when we understand it in a biblical way. These two ways can be contrasted, I think, in this way. The first way multiplies the species, the way of life. The second way, operational way, manages the resources. The first way, the way of life, is a way of reproduction. The second way is the way of productivity. The first way provides a legacy in humanity. The second way provides leadership for God's creation. You see these two ways, the biological way and the operational way, the way of life and the way of management, you see are mutually independent and supportive of each other. In other words, the human race must reproduce to have enough people to manage God's resources. At the same time, resources must be managed wisely, sagaciously, in order to sustain humanity, which then manages them. When we look at the biological plan, the first of those, it's the way of life. Be fruitful and multiply means to bear fruit. It means to produce young, to procreate. It also means to multiply, and that is to become great, as God told Abraham he would become, to multiply the tribe. You see, God created humans in his own image to accomplish that, didn't he? The biological way, the way of life. He made them how? In Genesis 1:27, he made them how? Male and female. And we know then he established marriage in chapter 2. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago as the right way to multiply. He gave Adam 
helper and a companion, Eve. Binary opposites, male and female, that complement each other perfectly, and they formed a one-flesh union that is to be permanent, and this is the appropriate way to multiply. It is the only appropriate way to multiply and perpetuate the human race. So that's the biological plan. But I want to talk a little bit more today about the operational plan, that is the work plan, and it's found in Genesis 1.28 in the next verse. To fill the earth, to subdue it, and to rule over all creatures. To fill the earth means that he calls us to make it abundant and to replenish the earth, to produce abundant harvests, to fill the earth with food and abundance. And in that, not just extracting from the earth, but renewing. That word to fill means also to replenish, to replenish the vitality, to take care of the earth, as the Antoniris have done for 26 generations. And to remember that this is important because God wants this to continue perpetually, for the earth not to be exhausted. To subdue the earth means to have dominion over it, to prevail over it. Actually, I think what this means is to take those resources and to direct the potential of those resources in the right way. To have dominion in such a way that we help God's resources become productive for godly purposes. And then to rule over all the creatures, to have dominion, to prevail. That is to bring all of creation, yes, not under our control, but under whose control? Under God's control. We are managers in his garden. We are his vicars, if you will, his substitutes, his household stewards to bring all of these resources to bear to bring glory to him. You see, our duty is to take care of God's garden. We work not for our own honor and glory, but to glorify God. That is the proper, I think, perspective about work. We're responsible, yes, to master the use of all the resources that he puts in our care, if you stop and think about it, we're the only species that can do that. We're the only species that's capable of planning and executing this God's blueprint. And he holds us accountable and responsible to do that as his servants. We are called to be benevolent servant rulers who care for all of God's creatures, not just for our glory, but for his. Genesis 2 then tells us how we are to replenish the earth. Genesis 2.15, which is the text listed in the bulletin. It says this, Then the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. There are two actions that are in that passage, two responsibilities, to cultivate and to keep. To cultivate really simply means to work, to work, to labor, to work, to labor, to, to, to dress the vineyard, if you will, to serve. We labor to produce a crop. This is a ministry of what I would call industry. Hard work and production. The way that we fill the earth is through hard work. But also, too, he says to keep the garden. And that means to guard it. It means to observe very carefully and to watch and to protect and to preserve it. To watch the garden in such a way that we preserve and we renew the resources. This is not the ministry of industry. This is the ministry of ecology, where we practice restraint and conservation. There's a balance that must be struck between these two, and that balance has not always been current, especially in the Industrial Revolution. We know that. 
But this balance is imperative. And sometimes we go too far one way in industry, and sometimes, frankly, folks, we become tree-huggingly too emphatic in the other direction, in ecology. Industry without ecology kills the earth. We need to be aware of that. But at the same time, the deification of ecology and the deification of nature kills people. Exploitation of the environment abuses and depletes God's resources. But we need to be mindful, folks. When we make a God of nature, it starves people physically but also spiritually. So we have to have a balance, I believe. And there is a biblical balance in this passage. The balance requires a biblical perspective on two things I want to talk about today. One is about work, and the other is about conservation. The biblical, a biblical perspective on work might go something like this. What are the purposes of work in the Bible? I think, first and foremost, it is our responsibility to use work to please God. That's why he enables us to work. To please him in all we do. Paul says, whether we're absent or present, we have this one ambition in mind in 2 Corinthians 5. And you know what it is. It's to please God. To please God in all we do. To the Colossians, he puts it in the context of bearing fruit, labor, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work. You see, that puts work in the right perspective. We work in order to do what? To please God. Secondly, we need to be mindful from a biblical perspective that work is a privilege. It's a privilege because we get to follow God's example. We get to walk alongside him. After all, Genesis opens this way. God just laid around and creation occurred. No, God did what? God worked. He worked on the first and the second and the third day. He worked on the fourth and the fifth and the sixth day. He worked. And then he did what? Then he rested. And Jesus says of his own father in John the fifth chapter, he said, and my father continues to work even until now. And I myself am working. Believers in Christ, Christ followers have a responsibility to work together with God in his field. We are fellow laborers alongside each other. Some might be Apollos, some might be Paul. We all have different responsibilities, but we work together with God, Paul tells the Corinthians, because you see, he says, you're God's field and God's building. So it's a privilege to work alongside God. I think that's a second important perspective about work from the Bible. A third is, it brings dignity. You see, we're created, we know this in Imago Dei, we're created in the image of God. That means, if you think about an image, where do you see your image? When you get up in the morning and you go in to brush your teeth, where do you see your image? You see it in a mirror. When you brush your hair, you see yourself in, an Im in the image of the mirror. We are called to mirror the image of God. He's creator and gardener. We are also procreators, we are recreators, and we are the caretakers in the garden. He, it's a privilege when he calls us to experience that kind of dignity in the image of God. You see, from this and working with God, it's where we get our self-esteem. It's where we get our personal worth, working with him. 
We enjoy what we're doing when we work for him and on behalf of him because it brings personal fulfillment and satisfaction. You see, that's dignity in the image of God. Dignity in the image of God means, too, that we also generate respect. People respect you when you work hard, not to bring glory to yourself, but so that they might be able to admire how God works through you, the Imago Dei. I think a fourth perspective on work from the Bible is we are called to provide. Provision. Provision for our families and for ourselves. Paul tells Timothy, but if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, that person has denied the faith. We must provide for our families. We must provide for ourselves. Or we are deniers of the faith, and he says, and we're worse than the unbeliever. And a final perspective, I think, on work is we're called to work in order to share, to share with those in need. And he puts it in rather stark terms to the Ephesians, which we studied about two months ago, when he tells those that have come out of paganism that are now Christians, he says, you know, you used to steal, but don't steal any longer. And then he goes on to say this, but rather you must labor, performing with your own hands what is good. Why? Well, of course, for provision. But then he goes on to say, so that you will have something to share with the one who has need. I think this helps us understand the biblical perspective of work, but there are also some pitfalls associated with work of which we need to be aware. The Bible addresses about seven of them that I have found. There are probably ten, probably more. But one is labor. Work is laborious. We should not shy away from hard work, but we must know that work, honest work, sincerely honest work is almost what? Hard. It is laborious. And that is because of the curse of the land. It is because of the sin of Adam. God said to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, by, but it will produce thorns and thistles, and they will grow up for you. And you'll eat the plants of the earth. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Work as a result of the curse because of Adam's sin is hard. Honest work is. It involves labor. Productive work always meets resistance and problems. It's hard work, and we need to know that to overcome the problems and obstacles to produce something that's worthwhile. A second problem or difficulty is unfairness. You know, we're not always, friends, rewarded appropriately for our hard work. Have you ever encountered that? Have you ever worked hard and not been rewarded the way you thought you should be? Well, you know what every parent tells their child from about age three on up. They should. Life is not what? Fair. Life is not fair. But you see, in this unfairness, we are taught. There's a lesson. In this unfairness and the hard work for which we are not redeemed appropriately, there's a lesson, and that is unfairness teaches us how to be fair. Chief Justice Roberts, you may have read part of his address to his, his uh, school that he had graduated from, from his alma mater, Cardigan Mountain School in New Hampshire. He had a son graduating from ninth grade there, and this is what he said. I'm going to give you some advice, he said. It's not going to be like, like the advice that you get at most commencement addresses. From time to time in the years to come, I hope that you will be treated unfairly 
so that you will know the value of justice. I hope that you will suffer betrayal because that will teach you the importance of loyalty. Sorry to say, but I hope you will be lonely from time to time so that you won't take friends for granted. I wish you bad luck again from time to time so that you will be conscious of the role of chance in life and understand that your success is not completely deserved and that the failures of others are not completely deserved either. And when you lose, as you will from time to time, I hope every now and then your opponent will gloat over your failure. That happened a lot yesterday on the football field, didn't it? You see, it's a way for you to understand the importance of sportsmanship. I hope you'll be ignored so that you'll know the importance of listening to others. And I hope that you will have just enough pain to learn compassion. Whether I wish these things or not, they're going to happen. And whether you benefit from them or not will depend upon your ability to see the message in your misfortunes. Folks, life is not fair, but it teaches us lessons. We may, we may not be recognized according to our merit. Koheleth, the preacher, tells us in Ecclesiastes, the race is not to whom? It's not to the swift. The battle is not to whom? To the strong. And neither is the bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability. See, for, from time, for time and chance overtake them all. Life is not always fair. The real rewards, I think the lesson from this, the real rewards don't come from men and the accolades that they give. Real rewards are conferred by God. Jesus said it three times in the Sermon on the Mount. When you give, when you pray, and when you fast, do it in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You can read that another way. And your Father will reward you in secret. He may not make it known to men then, but someday, someday our hope is that when we stand before him and you know what I'm going to say, we will receive that reward. Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful in a few things, and now we'll put you in charge of many things. This life may not be fair, but God is just. A third pitfall in work is jealousy. Don't be jealous of others' success at work. This is a wrong motive for working harder so that you might outdo them to be better than others. Again, Koheleth tells us in Ecclesiastes, and I saw that all toil and all achievements spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless. It's a chasing of the wind. You see, success is not measured by comparison with others at work. Genuine self-worth is not diminished by others' success. True self-esteem is not boosted by others' failures. Paul tells the Corinthians this. He says what? For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. In other words, they're foolish. But he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. For it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. I think another pitfall is obsession. We should never be 
consumed and eaten up with work. And when that happens, instead of serving God with work, work becomes our God. Derek Thompson wrote an article in The Atlantic a few years ago called The Gospel of Work. I don't know about Derek's background, but boy, it'll preach. He says this, today, for the college-educated elite, work has morphed into a religious identity, promising transcendence and community, but failing to deliver. The decline of traditional faith in America, listen to this, the decline of traditional faith in America has coincided with an explosion of new atheisms. Some people worship beauty. Some people worship political identities. Others worship their children. But everybody worships something. Is he right? Amen. And workism is among the most potent of the new religions competing for congregants. Workism, he says, is the belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose. And the belief that any policy to promote human welfare must always encourage more and more and more work. The point is this. Work is not what life is about. Work is not our identity. When our work becomes who we are, it becomes our God. No, work is just a role we fulfill. God puts us in his garden in a particular calling, and we exercise that calling to glorify him. And there's a greater end. We do it for God, not in place of God. There's a fifth pitfall, and it's greed. Profit is a just and right motive for work. It rewards productivity. It puts bread on the table. It put clo puts clothes on the back of our children and grandchildren. Profit is good. But profit for the sake of profitability alone turns to greed. Insatiable acquisitiveness. Enough never becomes enough. And we know what Jesus said about that. For what will it profit a man if he gain the whole world? Yet what? Forfeit his soul. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Two more pitfalls. One is leisure. We should not work only to retire. We should not work only to have leisure time. John Maynard Keynes in 1930, the great economist, predicted this, that by the 21st century we would have a 15-hour work week and a five-day weekend. Well, that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> but folks, American, Americans are working 200 hours less per year than they were in 1930. He said this, for the first time since his creation, you see, man will be faced with his real and permanent problem, and that is how to occupy his leisure time. There's a movement today, I've mentioned it before, called FIRE, F-I-R-E, financial independence, retire early. Now, it's mostly popular amongst the millennial generation, but not exclusively, so I'm not picking on you young folks, but you know what I'm talking about. Work really, really hard for 10 or 15 years. Save all of your income, spend nothing, invest it in growth, bonds, stocks, that sort of thing, so that you can produce a passive income for retirement, drawing 4% off the top. Save 50 to 75% of your income every year. Saving 75% of your income in four months builds enough income to pay for a year of retirement. And their goal is this. 
Their goal is this, to retire by the time they're 35 or 40. Folks, what are you going to do from 40 to 85? What's the purpose of work? It's not just to make money. We live in a leisure, crazy society. We don't work just to enjoy leisure. We don't work just to retire. Finally, uh-oh, here it is, entitlement. Work is a privilege. It is a gift from God. Ecclesiastes says, every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor, and it is a gift of God. Work is a gift from God. It's not an entitlement from the government or business. It's a gift from God. It's not a right guaranteed by the Constitution of the United States. It is a gift from God. If you're employed, God gave you that job. Oh, it came through a business. You might work for the government, but God gave you the job. And we should cherish the privilege of work and God blessing us with it. Not all people are fortunate enough to have work. Work is also a responsibility. It's not just a privilege. We should never look down on a person who is not able to work. We should help them in their need. We should pray for them and encourage them. There's some that are not able to work. But whoever is able to work, the Bible says, and refuses to do so should not be rewarded for his or her laziness. If you don't work, you don't what? Eat. You see, this breeds an entitlement culture, and it under undermines productivity, and it destroys self-esteem. Paul tells the Thessalonians, as we just said, if anyone is not, and here it is, it isn't that you don't work, it's that if you're not willing to work, he says, he should not eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all. Such persons we command, we exhort, work in a quiet fashion, and eat your own bread. There's another and final perspective that we need to look at, and that is a biblical perspective on conservation, not just work. We care for God's creation, His garden, because why? Because He cares for it. He created this world in six days, and at the end of Genesis 1, it says that He looked at it and said that it was what? Not good. Very good. Oh, yes, each day it was good, but he comes to the end, he says it's very good. You see, he cares for his creation. He cared enough for it to make it very good. He cares for all of his creatures. It's seen in the covenant that he made with Noah. The covenant with Noah in Genesis 9 not only was a covenant with him, but was with all creation. He said, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds the cattle and every beast of the field that is with you and all that come out of the ark, every beast of the earth. This covenant was with all creation. He cares for all of his creatures and he provides for every living thing. He feeds the birds of the air and yet they do not what? They do not sow or reap. He clothes the lily of the field, but the lily does not toil and it does not spin. His eye is on the sparrow, he knows when one falls to the ground. I sing the mighty power of God that made the mountains rise, that spread the flowing seas abroad and build the lofty skies. I sing the wisdom that ordained the sun to rule the day. The moon shines at his command and all the stars obey. 
There's not a plant or flower below, but makes thy glories known, and clouds arise and tempests blow by order from thy throne. While all that borrows life from thee is ever in thy care, and everywhere that can be, thou God art present there. He cares for his creation. He interacts with it, and it responds to him. Isaiah says that the hills will shout for joy, and the trees will do what? They will clap their hands. The psalmist says the sea roars praise. The rivers clap their hands, and the mountains sing praises of joy. He interacts with his creation, and it responds. He preserves his creation in Psalm 104, and it bears witness to him. It expresses his glory. It praises him. It reveals his wisdom. It demonstrates his power. And it points beyond itself to God Almighty. And, of course, Romans 1 says that creation bears witness to his power and glory. He cares for his creation. He interacts with it, and he preserves it, and his law protects it. That's why he told his nation, the Jews, that they were to implement the sabbatic rest for the land and the jubilee rest so that it would renew and replenish. Our role then in caretaking is to preserve the earth. We need to keep this in proper perspective. We're not masters of this earth when he says that he gives us dominion. Only the Lord is master. We're his fellow creatures amongst many other creatures. We're not the only ones that this creation is made for. I think there's another perspective, too. We cannot save this planet. We cannot save this planet. The corollary is only he can. You know, the laws of thermodynamics say that things are degenerating and degenerating and degenerating. The Bible says there's going to come an end. But in the meantime, only the Lord can save and preserve what is there. We can't save the planet without his help. But God has fashioned us uniquely to serve him in this cause. He's created us in his image and held, holds us accountable according to our conscience to replenish the earth. Humans alone have the ingenuity to plan and the power to recreate. And we have the authority from the King Almighty that we are made as his crowning creation. We are crowned with glory and majesty to rule over the works of his hands, over everything that is put under our feet. And I don't back off from that claim by the psalmist. Over all the sheep and the oxen and the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, and whatever passes through the paths of the seas, he puts in dominion under humans. We are commissioned, therefore, as his stewards, with two ecological tasks, and we've already mentioned them. One is to replenish the earth, to invent ways to maximize renewable resources. And Genesis 2, to preserve the garden, to lead the way in protecting those resources. Well, anyone can do that. One does not have to be a Christ follower to do those two things. Many scientists, many agronomists, Many people who may or may not be Christians do this every day, work at replenishing the earth and preserving the garden, and we should join them. But Christ followers, the scripture says, have a sacred duty, a sacred duty beyond that, 
Because you see in the word replenish, it also means to consecrate. We are responsible to bring consecration to this earth, to bring a holy dimension, introduce a holy dimension to God's creation. You see, we're, we're unique also as humans. Let me close with this. We're unique not only because he's made us his caretakers, but we're also unique because we are the only creatures on the face of this earth that are capable of and have sinned. You see, we have a great responsibility. It is because of the sin of Adam and Eve and the sin of each one of us that this creation groans today. We have a great responsibility because we as sinners bring this great groaning upon creation. And creation waits and waits for the redemption of the only Savior who can set it free, Romans tells us. And we have a sacred duty that goes beyond ecology, that goes beyond work. We have a responsibility to proclaim the redemptive power of Jesus Christ to save this creation, to proclaim that reconciliation someday will occur, and it will only occur through the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one, the only one, the only one that can save this globe. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. The final solution to the work and the labor that we put into this creation, the final solution to saving the planet, the final solution to the reproduction of humanity, and where does it all point? It points to the cross of Jesus Christ. Through his redemptive blood that he sacrificed to wash us free of sin and death. To reclaim not just us, but all of his creation, we have a sacred duty to proclaim. We live, as we've said, in a dark and dying world that doesn't understand work, doesn't understand the balance between work and ecology. Those are technical matters of science. But we also live in a world that does not understand the reconciling power of Jesus Christ. We have a responsibility to share that with them. Would you pray with me? Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.